Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell every kind of story here from art to sports to business and, of course, history. And we do it this day in history every day, and we love books. And we've done David McCullough and the Wright Brothers, and we've done that great, great book about Mark Twain's last and epic tour in his life to well, get some money back because he'd been broke from so many adventures and misadventures in the stock market and in business. And a book review caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, and the title was The Franklin House Divided. And here's how it started. On the 4th of July, 1776, Benjamin Franklin was in Philadelphia, having helped to draft the Declaration of Independence while his son, the governor of New Jersey, was under arrest in Connecticut having been branded an enemy of his country for persisting in his royal duties and opposing the revolution. In less than a year, William Franklin would be taken to the notorious Litchfield Gowl, a destination for, among others, traitors who had abused their privileges in lighter incarceration. And that led us to the guest that joins us now. The book review was for The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House, And Daniel Mark Epstein joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Daniel, tell us, what drew you to this book? Well, I was always interested in Benjamin Franklin from the time I was a kid. You know, as being one of the most versatile Americans, a man who was a great inventor, uh, and probably the the first great scientist in terms of uh, electricity. And, of course, everybody knows the story about Ben flying the kite. And I remember seeing the woodcut of uh, of Benjamin Franklin flying the kite with his little boy, and I wondered what would it be like to have Benjamin Franklin as a father, I mean, a man who was not only a great inventor, but um, created the militia in Pennsylvania in order to defend the frontier against the Indians, and then, you know, created the first postal system in Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania, and then, of course, became um, one of the greatest American patriots during the Revolution. What would it be like to be that man's son? Uh, and then, of course, I found out that um, Benjamin Franklin's only son was um, illegitimate, a bastard. But that uh, he was raised just as if he had been a legitimate son. And the two of them were partners in politics and in military affairs and uh, later in diplomacy. Um, so it was an extraordinary father-son relationship, and the fact that they went different ways during the Revolution, and that William Franklin um, became the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey, while his father, of course, was the greatest patriot, uh, drove them apart. And I thought, what a tragedy, and what a great story. So I actually wrote a poem about this in the 1990s. And do you have that poem? Do I have it with me right now? Yeah. <laughs> No, no. I mean, it's, it was published long ago. And as often happens, because I, I was a, a poet before I became a biographer, several of my uh, poems have been transformed into these larger and more complete biographies. And well, it's a good case of that. And that's how it really stuck with you. I mean, it went from poetry to, to, uh, to nonfiction. And in the end, poetry is, is storytelling as well. And, uh, and that's what you're doing here. Talk to the, the listeners, because a lot of people don't know this about American history. 
This was no duck walk for ordinary Americans. It split families. It split fathers and sons. Some people were with the revolutionaries and the, and the patriots. Some were with the, with, the, with the crown. And some were just hiding under the table, hoping it would pass. How did this basically split up, particularly in the area where Franklin lived in Pennsylvania? Of course, the numbers changed. But at the beginning, uh, the majority of the people were against the revolution. And in fact... Uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son, in their works of diplomacy um, in England, tried to prevent the revolution. It was only after the British beca- uh, government became more and more oppressive and they sent troops to Boston um, that Benjamin Franklin finally became a patriot fairly late in the game, around 1775. Uh, so they both resisted the revolution. As far as the numbers are concerned, by 1776, um, I would say a third of the American people were for the revolution, a third were against it, and the other third were just trying to blow with the wind and try to, you know, try to um, try to keep out of trouble. And talk about now, uh, just briefly, we'll we'll open up the open up the lid on the next segment about this father son conflict, but. Were there, were there battles out in the streets? Was this quiet? Was this simmering? What was the what was the climate like for folks day to day? Obviously, Franklin had a, had something to do with newspapers as well. Talk about what it felt like then, because today all we hear about is my goodness, the climate today in America. It's just so hard. But my goodness, we have seen much tougher times in this country. Well, um, just as an example, um, during the the passing of the Stamp Act. Uh, there were riots in the streets in uh, in Boston and Philadelphia, and by 1775, um, there was really open warfare in the streets of many cities um, over the um, over the tax, uh, the ver- various tax collectors, people protecting them, people attacking them, and uh, by 1776, there were these provincial uh, committees of safety who would um, actually hold individuals uh, accountable if they said anything that uh, that seemed to be threatening to the um, movement for independence. And this was the point where Governor Franklin, you know, as the last royal governor of New Jersey, was defending, uh, defending the loyalists, the people who protected the crown. So it really was, uh, it was a revolution in, st- I mean, it was a uh, civil war in the streets of the major cities uh, all over all over America. Indeed, it was our first civil war. I mean, that's what I got from the book. I mean, we had one before we had one. This is Lee Habib, and this is Daniel Mark Epstein and his terrific book, The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with the author Daniel Mark Epstein and the book The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Now, we had talked about briefly, Daniel, uh, what Ben Franklin was like and his remarkable contributions to this country. There were very few men with his biography, maybe no American with his biography. And let's talk about that son. You said he was a bastard child. Talk about his life and how he got from being Ben Franklin's son to the governor of a state. And there weren't that many states back then. Well, he was, um, William Franklin was an extraordinary young man in his own right. Uh, people talk about Ben Franklin as being precocious, as a businessman and a printer and a politician. Uh, but his son also was extraordinary. Um, his son wanted a military career. And so he went off and, and joined, uh, joined the King's Army at age 15. And by the time he was 18 years old, he was a captain, which was the highest rank you could attain in America without uh, paying for it. And um, at that point, he retired from the Army, and uh, his father got him a really good tutor, and he started studying law. And then he worked for his father um, in the um, legislature, in the Assembly of Pennsylvania, so he got this political career. And then when his father got the job to go off to England as the agent for the Assembly of Pennsylvania, representing the, the Assembly against the proprietors who refused to be taxed, his son went with him. And in England, his son rose very quickly. Uh, he went to the bar uh, and got his law, his law degree in his mid-20s, and shortly after that uh, was appointed to be the governor of New Jersey. So at that point in his life, he was in his late 20s. Uh, his father was uh, 50, in his mid-50s. He was even more powerful in the, uh, in the government than his father was. So he had an extraordinary career. And so let's get down to this conflict. I mean, by the time we get to the Stamp Act, as we had indicated before, um, the, the country was in pretty much open rebellion and a civil war was brewing. And William took a stand and Ben took a stand. And talk about uh, their final meeting in particular was remarkable. But before we get to that, build up to that if we can. Set up that, I, I think, almost just tragic scene between a father and son. Well, it's really extraordinary the extent to which the two men were living in different worlds, because um, by 1775, two years before the actual uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, William had been living in America. He was the governor of New Jersey, and he'd been the governor of New Jersey for more than a decade uh, in trying to represent the king's interests in America and trying to prevent this revolution, which he knew would be a disaster. And a lot of people, even Benjamin Franklin up until 1775, felt it would be a big mistake for America to separate from the mother country. Meanwhile, his father is in England, and his father is still working on behalf of the colonies, representing the colonies' interests in, uh, in England uh, against Parliament, and he's seeing more and more corruption in, uh, in England, and uh, in the meantime, the, 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 the English government is sending troops to Boston and the rest of America in order to enforce these uh, taxation laws, and he's growing more and more bitter against the, uh, the English government, so that the two of them were living in different worlds. And when it finally came down to the uh, 1776 
and the Declaration of Independence. Uh, William was thoroughly on the side of the king and the crown, and his father at that point was a confirmed American patriot and revolutionary. So they just went different ways. Even before that, I think there was a certain amount of jealousy between father and son, as sometimes happens tragically. Um, And um, his dad, I think, was a, a little bit jealous of William. So let's talk next about this father and son. They're at loggerheads. What happens to William next as he takes his stand? The country is moving to war. It's clearly ready for war. William's not. Well, first of all, his father came home in time to try to talk his son over to the the side that he believed would be safest, uh, that is, the side of the revolutionaries. And the two had some very, very stormy confrontations um, in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, uh, where where, uh, his father visited him, and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries, because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William uh, ended up being the last, um, the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, uh, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield, Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement uh, with bread and water for 18 months. Uh, and suffered terribly during that time. Um, he finally was released in a prisoner's exchange, but his father had very little to do with that, and eventually went back to England. And this had to really hurt Ben Franklin. I mean, A, it's his son, and no matter what kind of jealousies might have existed, to watch this befall, this kind of plight befall your son, had to be difficult. Moreover, he's a very public figure, and it wasn't as if his son was some wallflower. He was a governor who was now in jail. How did he handle that? Well, Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life, and you have to believe that. And there was a lot of public criticism of him for not, uh, for not helping his son out. But remember, he was the minister plenipotentiary to France and could not be seen as being in collusion with, uh, you know, with a Tory. And so he was in a horrible, it's really a tragic situation, uh, which really is kind of like the, um, uh, the Revolutionary War in microcosm. And do you think he really understood his son's hardship? I don't. No, I don't really think. I think the, the part of the tragedy of the book and what I finally end up saying in the end is that these were two men who could never reconcile although the son wanted to, William wanted to more than his father did, they could never reconcile because they, they just did not understand each other. And these were two very intelligent men. So it shows you just how extreme uh, this break between father and son can be when it happens. Yep. And, and in the end, the, the father didn't understand the son, but the son didn't understand the dad either. I don't think so. I don't... Part of the... What, what we haven't spoken about is that at the end of the war, William became a counter-revolutionary, a violent counter-revolutionary, and uh, this his father could not, could not ever forgive. And indeed he couldn't. And by the way, father-son's stories, well, they're riveting, always drawing everyone in. I mean, this is how Arthur Miller made his living, telling father-son stories. Heck, it's, it's how Bruce Springsteen's made his. And this is as good and as harrowing a father-son story as I've ever read. Daniel Mark Epstein, The Loyal Son, The War in Franklin's House. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure. And, you know, we love to do these stories about history. And as always, so often, we bring you this days in history by Hillsdale College. But stories like this are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale, too. And, my goodness, one of the things I had forgotten to ask uh, Daniel was what the similarities were today to then. Uh, And in large measure, that populist movement of the revolutionaries, well, it came about because they had been felt like they'd been governed by a foreign and far off power. And that's, of course, the British crown. And in large measure today, a lot of the populist movement, many people believe, is because there's a far off power called Washington, D.C. And many people in this country feel like that foreign power or that far away power isn't responsive to their needs and to their lives. Again, as always, these stories, the stories about American history, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. And folks, they have terrific, terrific online courses there on everything. And the one I'd most highly recommend to start things out is the Constitution 101, because it digs in and drills down on the Founding Fathers and what they were after as they created the most important document in world history. And many people believe that. It's not just us saying it. We don't have a lot of opinions here in the show. We just tell stories. And one of the stories coming up, we'll be doing a a long-form series on the Constitution and how it came to be. But go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And again, The Loyal Son is the book, The War in Franklin's House, and we learn in this story that there was a civil war in this country long before the Civil War. And it had started off with just a small minority of Americans wanting to fight the revolution. But ultimately, many more joined, many resisted, and again, many, well, they just hid, hoping it would all pass. And this story of Ben Franklin and his son, and his son being in, imagine this, solitary confinement for 18 months with bread and water the most famous of the Founding Fathers, but for George Washington, and his son rotting in jail. What a story. Ben Franklin's story, his son's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that's Vincent Price performing his spoken word part in Michael Jackson's song and, of course, video thriller. Price is one of the most popular and distinct voices in horror movie history. Often referred to as the master of menace, the actor died on this day in history 
1993. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Price starred in the 1953 film House of Wax, which brought back the horror genre. And while Price primarily starred and narrated for the creepiest of films, he branched out into others as well, including film noir, drama, mystery, thriller, and comedy. Here is Price's daughter, Victoria, talking about her father's favorite films. I think my dad loved to do movies where he felt like he was touching on something authentic. He really loved the whole process of doing the Poe films. He loved working with Roger Corman. He loved working in England. He was an Anglophile from his childhood. And so to get to make a lot of those movies in England and work with some of the great British actors, that was incredibly exciting. That same was true of Theatre of Blood. He got to work with some amazing British actors and actresses, one of them being my future stepmother. But I think all of the Poe movies were a real highlight for him, something that was really important to him. I think some of the movies that he he got to have fun with, like uh, His Kind of Woman with Jane Russell and, and Robert Mitchum. That was, I think, a highlight for him. Champagne for Caesar, because he got to work with his idol. His idol as, an, as a young actor was an actor named Ronald Coleman, and he was in that movie as well. I think he got a big kick out of working with Tim Burton. I think it, it, it felt like sort of... I don't know, like payback, I mean, in a good way. It was like at the end of his career, somebody was giving him something back after he'd been such a generous person and and given so much to so many fans. And here was this fan giving him this incredible swan song. Price was a fan of poetry, especially the poems and work of Edgar Allan Poe. And of course, with a voice like his, it always sounded superb. I was reading through a book of poems just the other day and I came across this and I think it's rather marvelous. The conqueror worm, lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng, bewinged, bedight in veils and drown in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. That motley drama, oh, be sure it shall not be forgot, with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth into the selfsame spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, while the angels uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man and its hero, the conqueror worm, Edgar Allan Poe. Price's reading of The Raven is one of the most popular Edgar Allan Poe reads ever. And by the way, to hear it, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We did a, an entire segment just on that one day a while back. Price's job was to scare people. He loved how wonderful it felt to be scared to death. But according to his daughter, he had a soft spot as well. My dad was more full of life and more full of joy and more full of the desire to be alive than anyone I ever met. And because of that, he struck me as being really different than other grown-ups. And 
special in that way. And, and everybody felt that. One of my favorite pictures of him is of my, you know, maybe ninth, tenth birthday. And he's in the teacups at Disneyland. And the teacups swirl really fast. You get in and you all put your hands on the wheel and you make them turn and you go really fast. And it's my dad and three of my friends. And he is having way more fun than any of those 10-year-old girls. He is having a blast. So what really struck me when I was a kid was that, of course, people responded to that. Everybody responded to that. All of my friends loved him. Everybody loved my dad. And I thought they were treating him as special because he was special in that way. And I didn't really understand at first that there's this extra layer of special that the world calls celebrity. He was different than other grown-ups. Victoria shares how he was also different than other celebrities. My dad was told by Helen Hayes in the first two years of his career one thing that he believed his whole life. She said, if you were an actor, you're a public servant. And what he understood that to be was, without your fans, without your audience, then you're just some nut bucket standing talking to yourself, right? If you don't have fans, then you're not really gonna have a career that pays the bills. And my dad really took that to heart. And so he never, ever said no for an autograph, never. I was with him one time at Yale where he went to college, did, his, did a retrospective. And what happened was they showed all these films and one evening he went out to dinner and the Italian restaurant had sort of a plate glass window. And I was eating there with him and uh, my college roommate and this one guy saw my dad and came in and asked for an autograph. And pretty soon, there was a line going out the door of people asking for an autograph. It took him 40 minutes to sign those autographs, sign them, talk to people, connect with people. He never said no. He never looked down at his plate and said, can I finish my meal first before it gets cold? He never said no. He always was generous. The only time he ever said no was on my 12th birthday. He and I went to Magic Mountain, which is an amusement park in outside of Los Angeles. And we loved to ride roller coasters together. That was our thing. And he decided that as my 12th birthday present, he would sign no autographs. Because, you know, at an amusement park, lots of kids asking for autographs. So kids started to come up to him right away. And he said, you know what? It's my daughter's birthday. And for her birthday present, I'm not going to sign any autographs. And those kids looked at me like I was the devil incarnate. And by halfway through the day, I'm like, Dad, just sign the autographs. They hate me. I don't care. Sign the autographs. Those kids, I keep, you know, thinking, those will be the only kids in America who believe that Vincent Price was actually mean. <laughs> and that's a great story. And here his daughter talks about her favorite film done by her dad. I would say my favorite movie of my dad's is Laura. It's a classic film noir. It's an amazing cast, an amazing director. And I think the reason I love it is that it's a part, a type of part my dad only played once in his career. And I sort of get this glimpse through that part of a part of my dad, not that he was a Southern cad, but he was, he saw himself as being from the South. He was from St. Louis. He saw himself as being sort of a Midwestern slash slightly Southern guy. And he was blonde in that movie. He looked like he wasn't playing a character in a sense. He, he was, of course, he was acting, but 
I got this kind of glimpse of who he was, and it was such a different kind of role, and uh, and it's such a great movie. So that's my number one. And when we come back, more on the life of Vincent Price, this St. Louis boy goes through Yale, starts to study drama, and becomes well a voice we all we all come to know as the voice of horror. But there's so much more. By the way, Rent Laura. Go and get it from Netflix. Do what you got to do. It's one of the great Otto Preminger films. One of the great black and white classics you've probably never seen. It's called Laura. You'll see Vincent Price in a way you never imagined. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Vincent Price's story. He died on this day in history in 1993. This is Our American Stories, and we've been looking into the life and career of the master of horror, Vincent Price. The actor died on this day in history in 1993. Part of Price's appeal as a villain was the humor he could inject into the most sinister of roles. Vincent Price loved a good laugh, and he would often attend his own movies to play pranks on people. Most terrifying line I ever said in my life was, boo. Yes, that was to my seven-year-old daughter. She jumped a foot. No, I get a big kick out of going to some of the spooky movies I do and sitting in a row very quietly by myself, preferably behind two young girls. And um, (laughs) then when it's over, I just tap them on the back and I say, did you like it? And they go right into orbit. (laughs) Right into orbit. (laughs) He was the idol and inspiration of many, including director Tim Burton in 1982. Burton created a stop-motion short film dedicated to Vincent Price. It was titled Vincent, which Price was asked to voice over. Here's that story. Vincent Malloy is seven years old. He's always polite and does what he's told. For a boy his age, he's considerate and nice. But he wants to be just like Vincent Price. He doesn't mind living with his sister, dog, and cats though he'd rather share a home with spiders and bats. There he could reflect on the horrors he's invented. And wander dark hallways alone and torment. Vincent is nice when his aunt comes to see him, but imagines dipping her in wax for his wax museum. He likes to experiment on his dog, Abercrombie, in the hopes of creating a horrible zombie. So he and his horrible zombie dog could go searching for victims in the London fog. 
His thoughts, though, aren't only of ghoulish crime. He likes to paint and read to pass some of the time, while other kids read books like Go, Jane, Go. Vincent's favorite author is Edgar Allan Poe. One night, while reading a gruesome tale, he read a passage that made him turn pale. Such horrible news he could not survive, for his beautiful wife had been buried alive. He dug out her grave to make sure she was dead, unaware that her grave was his mother's flower bed. His mother sent Vincent off to his room, he knew he'd been banished to the Tower of Doom, where he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life alone with the portrait of his beautiful wife. While alone and insane, encased in his doom, Vincent's mother burst suddenly into the room. She said, if you want to, you can go out and play. It's sunny outside and a beautiful day. Vincent tried to talk, but he just couldn't speak. The years of isolation had made him quite weak. So he took out some paper and scrawled with a pen, I am possessed by this house and can never leave it again. His mother said, you're not possessed and you're not almost dead. These games that you play are all in your head. You're not Vincent Price, you're Vincent Malloy. You're not tormented or insane, you're just a young boy. You're seven years old and you are my son. I want you to get outside and have some real fun. Her anger now spent, she walked out through the hall. And while Vincent backed slowly against the wall, the room started to sway, to shiver and creak. His horrid insanity had reached its peak. He saw Abercrombie, his zombie slave, and heard his wife call from beyond the grave. She spoke from her coffin and made ghoulish demands, while through cracking walls reached skeleton hands. Every horror in his life that had crept through his dreams swept his mad laughter to terrified screams. To escape the madness, he reached for the door but fell limp and lifeless down on the floor. His voice was soft and very slow as he quoted the raven from Edgar Allan Poe. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. And that's why Vincent Price is Vincent Price. Ask many actors today to do something like that. They couldn't do it. They simply could not do it. Many of the films, by the way, Price was in won awards, including his final film in 1990, Edward Scissorhands, also a Tim Burton film. It won the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Price played the inventor that creates Edward. Here he talks about the film and what it was like working with Johnny Depp wonderful ideas of using the motion picture for a visual effect. This is, I think, is one of his great sort of talents. I, the inventor, who creates Edward. And it's, it's all done in a sort of montage scene where you sort of see the inventor get the idea. He has invented other things. Why not invent a man? So he creates Edward. 
It creates them out of a cookie heart, the heart of a cookie. It's a, it's a wonderful kind of comic but very serious idea because it is, it is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale with a moral. Uh, all fairy tales have morals. That's why they were written, to teach us something. It's a beautiful story. It really is a beautiful story. It's a very tough thing to play somebody who is created, you know, other than the normal way. Uh, it's very d difficult to do. What do you do? I mean, because you're an unreal character, and yet he's in very real situations. Uh, there are very few people who have scissors as hands, fortunately. But uh, I've, I've just heard the most wonderful things about him and his seriousness and the approach to this character. I must say I'm a great admirer, and, and working with him has been a joy. Unfortunately, Price was a lifelong smoker, which began to affect him. His appearances in the film were cut short due to poor health. And in 1993, in October, on this day in history, Price died of lung cancer at the age of 82 in Los Angeles. He has left a legacy with his voice, and he has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for motion pictures and one for TV. Thankfully, Vincent was not alone in his line of work and personality. The most horrible and yet wonderful group of men was Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price. They were often referred to as the horrifying and terrifying trio, three of the most amazing voices in Hollywood history. The three of them were best friends. Connecting them was their love to scare and the ability to portray evil forces. But these men were not evil. Their film roles and distinctive voices had become their art. Here is Christopher talking about his best friends after they were gone. He describes two pictures, the first with his friend Peter Cushing, the second with Vincent Price. Both pictures feature the actors laughing together. He recalls the memory of his dear friends. Acting is not just about dreams. Acting is also about memories. Memories of the films you've been in, memories of the characters you've played, and I have many very happy memories of films that I've been in and of characters that I have played. But far more important to me is the memory not just of the films that I was in or the characters that I played, but the memory of two particular people. Not just professional colleagues, and not just close personal friends, far more than that. And here is the first. I don't know what one of us had said to the other. Probably we'd been doing Yosemite Sam or Sylvester the Cat or something like that because we both loved those films. But this was on the set of The Gorgon in 1965. I wasn't dressed for the scene. Peter, I don't even have to add his second name, Peter was dressed for the scene. This picture is of the other. And I don't think I have to give his second name either. Just simply Vincent. This was, I think, the first film we ever made together. I'm sort of half-dressed, and I'm not quite sure again what I said or what he said, but it was anything to do with the game of chess. I certainly said that I 
knew absolutely nothing about the game, and Vincent, of course, who knew everything about everything, was probably a grand master. Wouldn't have surprised me. They were both grand masters of their art and, more important, as human beings. Wonderful people, wonderful actors, and very, very dear friends, and I miss them very, very much. And there you have it, a dear friend, Christopher Lee, talking about his friends Peter Cushing and, of course, Vincent Price. Vincent Price's story here on Our American Stories. He died on this day in history in 1993. our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show and that's love stories death stories, war stories stories about our history and our nation's history stories about sports, the arts you name it and we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country and mostly almost uniformly with honor and with dignity and today we're joined by a local his book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent Adventures, Close Calls and the toll of a double life, and Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Well, you thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana, and by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans, so we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching their body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learn. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun French and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking, game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. 
And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups, I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through, and I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt, and some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx, and he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps, and you know when Fred's saying that, right? that he means it. It's not just a a platitude. Let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with V.C., ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleeping two hours, then on watch. And then all day, you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down, and when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time. It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit. 
You've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have uh, sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, uh, a terrifying moment. The uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, oh, my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close. Or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and... Uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apartment, at our apartment. And he came over. We had coffee, and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. That started my 10-year undercover career, 
you know, six years with the Baton Rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence. And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. And therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so uh, usually... Uh, I'd get home maybe three or four o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports, or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yep. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the, in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report. Some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we – you know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. Know, what are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. I, when I saw him and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden... 
I whispered, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys, and she just kept, I mean. She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, yeah. which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or, is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up right. and just move. Right, like when the, uh, when the uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back. And he pointed to him. We were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it, that home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie would be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her, too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and I say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Ural. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told, the heroin dealer had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road, drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time. You know, So it's like being on the moon, it's remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dedman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll, the heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer's side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Detman, Jerry Detman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot 38 toward her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Dedman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, 
Jerry rode over, flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital, or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand, and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat, and about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room, and the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here, and they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes. It was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs, and she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, Don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on. A tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him and said, Mister, Mister, would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And... This happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. It was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building, she double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep, and at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was, and the agent said, Sarah, I've been, been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them, 
a blouse with blood all over it and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian Mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what the, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City and they're well known. And that's Mississippi. Right. Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford. Very rural. Uh, they're well known. But they happen to be talking with people in town and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money and all of a sudden they'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home and the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of a scam target and then call others come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things. Uh, and 
that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies, and they're operating over a multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, But it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look. Here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait, man, don't tell him something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they, so they <laughs> spread the story. They spread the story that I was, uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought, what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that helped dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, We've already gotten rid of it. But there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen. And so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box. And then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries. And I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they would stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they won't unload, and they took me out in the country and showed them to me, and we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals, and one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such-and-such, it was a relative of his, lives on that 
that hill up there in that house, uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, Corvettes to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. Nice deal for twenty two hundred dollars. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't yeah. buy a used car for this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. For Whatever me. you do, yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable, because Charlie, you ran every every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly. You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I, I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force prosecutor, uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going until we got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases. And the state agent said, um, 
well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we work. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to cake, can to cake. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one. From undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up. And he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places. And he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.